Welcome to Blindspot, an audio podcast series about forensic science and the role forensic experts play in our judicial system. The name Blindspot comes from the fact that forensic experts can see and hear what laypersons cannot. Forensic experts reveal the blind spot in court using their experience and expertise as forensic scientists. Welcome to Blind Spot, a digital media forensic podcast including stories from forensic experts, forensic trainers, as well as successful attorneys. Today's episode features a prominent Chicago trial attorney, Nenye Uche, who's got an amazing story to share with us. Nenye, welcome to Blind Spot. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Tell our listeners about your background, Nenye, especially your story. You've got an amazing story on how you came to be one of the prominent trial attorneys in Chicago. So um, really, um, I I was born in Columbus, Ohio. My parents were... Um, my dad was a PhD student studying mass communication and journalism at the Ohio State University. Had and with my mom, my mom was just getting a master's in um, the same thing. Um, they moved back to Nigeria, started working for the government, and then my mom got pregnant with me. My dad sent me over, sent her over to the U.S. to have the baby because she had some complications. They had me there, so that's. First part, never grew up in the U.S. Immediately they had me. Within a month, she was back in Nigeria. And I grew up in Nigeria, my childhood. So I was about 18, just turning 18. And that was in 99, I moved to the U.S. Um, I, you know, we went straight to, to college. Nigeria is a different system. Like the British system in Nigeria, when you when you finish high school or what they call secondary school, you are immediately um, you apply to go to study law, and you study law for I believe it's about six years, and then when you're done, you go to law school for a year. Whereas in the U.S., you can go to college and study anything you want, and then go to law school for three years. So I'd already got an admission in Nigeria for law, finished. I started maybe like the first few days and then my dad told me I was heading to the U.S. to go to college because the system was much better there, um, which it was uh, and still is. So moved to the U.S. for college. What got me interested in law, why I wanted to be a lawyer, because I grew up in Nigeria and when I grew up in Nigeria, the military was in complete control of the country. It was what you call a military junta government. That means the armed forces was the parliament and they were the executive branch. They did not have power over the judiciary, theoretically speaking, even though they really did. They kind of forced judges to do what they wanted with the gun whenever they wanted to. But for the most part, they made the laws, they executed the laws. We didn't have governors, we had military administrators, we didn't have a president, we had a supreme military ruler. Uh, they were group during a period of a lot of coups. Africa had just come out of the independence from the British um, Empire decline in the 60s. So a lot of these countries were very young and very unstable. And so the military in these various countries, including Nigeria, where I grew up, took over 
And I would say I grew up with at least looking back from 1981, my own memory of 83, I would say three or four different military crews. So one military guy's in control, another guy comes, kicks him out, either through violence or what they call a palace coup, where there's no bloodshed. Um, very unstable period in Nigeria. My dad was a journalist. He was constantly being harassed by the military. Military rulers hate journalists. They just hate that. Most dictators do anyway. And so he was always being harassed, speaking. There was a girl that went to my secondary school, or what you guys would call high school at the time. I was a very young kid. I just got into secondary school, high school. Um, and she was in a car and it was her neighbor's car and the neighbor was a high-ranking military official. This was during the military rule. And they were giving the little girl right to school because she just happened to be in the same class as this military personnel's daughter. So while they were in their car, what they used to do then was when the military is moving in a convoy, they opened up all the doors and you had soldiers on either side of the doors that were open sticking out machine guns as a threat to the public because the public didn't like the military in power. So they always did this. They moved in convoys of 11 cars, three cars, two cars, never one car alone. But in this case, I believe if I remember from the articles, she was in a three car convoy. And one of the soldiers, she was sitting next to him. His gun went off in the car and blew her head off. And this girl was about 11, 12, maybe at the time. And absolutely nothing happened. You know, people were outraged. How could you guys do this? How, how were you careless? And they were, it wasn't intentional. It was just reckless. And nothing was done about it. I don't even think they compensated the family. And that outraged me. You know, as a kid, I was 12. I couldn't understand. I didn't know what law was. I had an idea. I kept asking my dad, you know, what's going to happen? He's like, unfortunately, nothing. Newspaper ran a bunch of articles attacking the military. I, I know a bunch of the journalists were arrested for writing articles on the story. Nothing happened. The girl's mom came on television and wrote op-ed begging for whoever was responsible to be brought to justice, the soldier in question that was in the convoy, or at least something to be done. She just wanted, I, honestly, the lady just wanted answers. And they never gave her any. And just apart from that, you know, there was a guy that my dad knew. They were not friends. My dad just happened to know him because he was also a journalist. His name was Dele Giwa. He was a Nigerian journalist, very prominent journalist. I think he's school in the U.S. Um, most of these guys did. Um, and he wrote an article critical of the Nigerian military dictator at the time. His name was Ibrahim Babangida. And one day he received a parcel in his house. He opened up the parcel and it blew up. Wow. Uh, first time I ever heard of a letter bomb killing. And everybody knew who did it. And the military dictator knew that everybody knew it was him. But till today he denies it, you know. And he was like, ah, it wasn't me. I don't know what happened. But I mean, this stuff was well-planned and executed. And um, stuff like that happening growing up as a child. My dad wrote articles for human rights. You know, those things got me interested in law, especially civil rights. I've always known I wanted to be a personal injury slash civil rights attorney. 
Um, and that interest developed from my experiences, direct experiences dealing with human rights abuses in Nigeria. I always believe the best of the best professionals are motivated by success and passion. I can tell you're very passionate about your work because I know you and because of your history. There's a situation that you told me about involving Chevron that really motivated you to take action. Could you share that story? There was an incident in Nigeria in 96, 95, 96, where there was a big oil spill, cost, massive environmental calamities. Um, there was a human rights activist, his name was Ken Sarawila, and he was against, he was upset with Chevron and Shell. Actually, it wasn't even Chevron, it was Shell. It wasn't the American company. It was Shell, it's a Dutch company, it's a Dutch oil company. And he started um, um, complaining and there was a lot of activism as to what they had done, spilling oil, destroying these people's wildlife. It was mainly a fishery community. That's a community where they live on water, essentially. They build houses on water and their entire culture is based around fishing. And so these people have nothing. And bottom line is Shell, facilitated and helped the military government capture this guy by sponsoring the military government, captured him and they hung him uh, on national TV live as a warning to everybody else. Never forget that. And so you realize at that point, you know, um, you have good corporations, but you also have corporations, sometimes they misbehave. And that was one example. So that got me looking at personal injury as it pertains to human rights, but then, you know, of course, that expanded and evolved over the years. Uh, and that's why I tend to focus on nursing home abuse cases, because essentially the same thing, a big corporation owns a bunch of nursing homes. They're putting profits ahead of human safety. They're not taking care of elderly people. Elderly people, uh, you know, cannot really defend themselves. They're not as verbal as they were when they were younger. They're not as vital, you know. And so, you know, you have bed sores, you have beatings in nursing homes by CNAs or nurses, stuff like that. And that's corporate abuse, essentially. So that got me involved in that area. So that, that's how I got involved in this. It was from a very um, turbulent political uh, past that I had in, with the Nigerian, um, living under Nigeria's military rule. Uh, I know it's kind of random and weird, but that's essentially what happened. Yeah. You know? Well, it's it's fascinating to me to hear you tell that story. Um, yeah. I've known you for a while now. You and I have worked on several cases together over the years. We met on the Litwin case where there was some altered video evidence. You followed that case all the way through to the appellate court and and you won. Tell, tell me a little bit in your words how having a forensic expert involved in that case as well as the Afondish Cockerham case and the Aaron Carey case. Tell me a little bit about, you know, I was always amazed at your thinking process. You're a great thinker, Nene. And, and I know that that has a lot to do with how you process cases, but tell me a little bit about why you found a, a digital media expert, an audio video forensic expert to help you with these and how you feel that helped with the outcome of these litigations. One thing, I think one of the biggest flaws attorneys have is that attorneys think, generally, think they know it all, unfortunately. Or, or they think they're masters of every subject. 
The problem with that is sometimes the jury doesn't want to hear from you for credibility. Sometimes the jury actually wants to hear from someone who does a particular area every day, all day. You know, um, what inspired me was the Johnny Cochran case with the O.J. Simpson case. I studied that case as a younger kid in college. I used to review tapes of that case. And what inspired me about the case, I was listening to an interview with Alan Dershowitz, who was one of the um, lawyers Cochrane hired on the case. And specifically, he was hired for DNA, along with an attorney called Barry Sheck and Paul Newman. If I, not Paul Newman, I forgot the guy's name. But there were three young, geeky-looking attorneys at the time. Um, and of course, Dershowitz is a very prominent Harvard law professor who's now Trump's attorney in the impeachment proceedings. But these guys were specifically hired for one task and one task alone, DNA. Um, and they talked about the way Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey, those guys, those trial lawyers handled the case. And what stuck out to me was there was a lot of delegation. So it wasn't Johnny Cochran that won the case. He, he won the case, he led the win, that was great. But there were a lot of moving parts to that case and he couldn't have done it without a bunch of different experts that he gave a lot of access to. And so that was a teaching moment for me, just studying that case. And so what I've always tried to do is when I have a case, um, especially a case that is not clear cut, because the clear cut cases, as you know, Ed, those cases settle. Sure. The city or whoever you're suing, they're not crazy. They're not going to go to court on a case or go to trial on a case they know is clear cut. Um, but in every other case that goes to trial, there is usually one side and the other side. And that's where you bring in an expert. So, for instance, the Litwin case was very interesting because, of course, as you remember from that case, you had a case where the police department um, was using uh, video processing or video recording systems that were from the dinosaur era, the VHS video recording yep. system. Yep. And this case was in 2012. So we were already in the new age of... Um, DVDs and stuff, but these guys were using old video recordings. And the problem with those video machinery that they were using was those things, at least from my understanding from you and just, just common sense, were are very subject to manipulation. Because they're old, they're old school. You can dub, I remember growing up, you could dub over things, right? We used to call it right. dubbing. I don't know what they call it now, but you, you go rent a movie or you have a blank VHS, you dub over it, you dub another show over it, you know? Yep. And we had one of those situations in the case where the guy was accused of having all these drugs and drug trafficking and drug trafficking bust. And the tape kept skipping. There were missing parts of the tape. Bottom line is it looked like it had been manipulated. And we brought you in. You were already on the case by the time I came on the case because I was the second attorney brought on. And I loved your report. It was crisp. You have very powerful communication skills because you can be the best expert. But if you're an expert that puts jurors to sleep, you're no expert at all. Uh, you're only an expert to your subject area, not for the jury. 
and you you communicate with the jury. They understand you. You're likable. They like you. They're listening. You're engaging, and you were able to show them that it was a high mechanical and scientific probability that these tapes or, or this tape purporting to show the bus, the drug trafficking bus, was manipulated. Now, the jury ultimately did not convict for a wider variety of reasons based on some of the rulings that the judge made, which were erroneous re- uh, rulings. Um, but it went up to the appellate court. Now, I called the judge's ruling erroneous, not because I was annoyed with him or I'm annoyed with him, but that's the fact based right. on what happened when we got to the appellate court. We get to the appellate court and the appellate court reverses the judge's decision, declares the judge's decision erroneous, and makes it a point to overemphasize. In fact, they couldn't emphasize it enough. The fact that their ruling was based solely, solely on your expert testimony. And this is why it becomes important, because normally uh, appellate courts, which are judges that review jury decisions or judges' decisions in the lower court, they, they don't like touching or tampering with a jury's verdict. They don't like it. But when you have an expert that they've read the transcript, I remember now, they didn't see you testify live. They read your transcript. That means you were not just effective in court. You were effective in terms of what was written down about what you were saying. So the communication that you gave to the jury came through in the transcript. And they based their entire decision on the fact uh, that the video they felt was tampered with or something, some hanky-panky was going on. Regardless of whether it was true or not, as far as they were concerned, that was enough for reasonable doubt. So that case was reversed. On to the Cockerham case, one of the second major cases I worked with you on, you had a situation where a police officer claimed he shot a kid in the back because the police, the kid was running and was turning and pointing a gun at him. You saw the tape. I saw the tape. You slowed down the tape. Not only did you slow down the tape, you enlarged the tape. You gave me different screenshots of a larger version, which clearly showed that this kid never turned around. In every screenshot, it showed him with his back turned um, from the cop running away from the cop. And so that was a big, fat, juicy lie the cop told. And as as most people understood, um, you cannot shoot a suspect in the back just because they're on the wave, they pose no threat. And so the your expert analysis was very important for that because the jury got to see the enlarged, the enhanced tapes that you made the screenshot enhancements that you had, and they didn't have to take my word for it. They could see it with their own eyes. And, you know, a picture says a thousand words, a video says a million. And so it said a million things to them as to what exactly happened, that this boy never pointed a gun at a cop, never turned around towards the cop, was not a threat. So the bottom line is expert testimony is vital. In fact, I recommend it in most cases. There are certain cases, yeah, where you don't need an expert testimony, cases in which a jury doesn't need expert testimony. They can figure it out themselves. A guy's walking, slips on water, falls down, bumps his head. If there's a video picture of the pool of water, you don't need an expert for that. But really, I tell people, I tell younger attorneys, and I tell contemporary attorneys, you need an expert witness. 
I recently had a police shooting case. I'm not going to say the name so the attorney doesn't think I'm criticizing. But we lost the shooting case uh, because this attorney refused to get an expert. Refused, absolutely refused. He could pay for one, but he refused to get a police shooting expert um, because he didn't think we needed one. Now, I advocated as the second chair on the case, we need an expert to explain to the jury, you still can shoot a guy from the back of the head, um, you know, no matter what's going on, as long as they're not a threat to you. And there was a back and forth as to what the guy was doing. The jury got lost in all the back and forth between the attorneys. And they made that clear to us when we spoke to them. They're like, well, we didn't hear from an expert, so we gave the police officer the benefit of the doubt. That's why you need an expert. And so I always tell people, for me personally, I cannot tell another attorney what to do when they're leading the case. But in any case that I lead, I, the first question I always ask is, do I need an expert? I just recently got a new case where a guy was found I told you earlier before we came on air how I was at morgue. A guy was found dead in his jail cell on Saturday morning. It was all over the local news. His brain is popping out of his skull. His face is black and blue. Beat, somebody beat the crap out of him, beat him to death. Uh, his cellmate has not been charged with murder. The cellmate has not been put in solitary confinement. In fact, the cellmate was just moved back so different jail cells. So we know the cellmate didn't do it. This occurred between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. So either A, um, another cellmate did it or another inmate did it, which begs the question, how did he get access to this guy's cell? That tells me the sheriff let him in or the sheriffs beat this guy up. Yeah, so we have a press conference that, um, scheduled for Wednesday regarding this case. It's a really big case because of the implications of what could have happened. Um, of course, the sheriff's department, and you know, the department responsible for the jails, they are keeping quiet, but not for long. We're going to get some subpoenas out. But even on this case, the first thing I started thinking about was an expert witness. I need an expert witness who can review the timesheets of the sheriffs who were on duty that day, who was watching this kid, what's their 24-hour shift, what's the training they're supposed to do, what's the practice of people watching people in jail. How do you, do you check, do 10 minute checks? How is it possible nobody heard this guy screaming for help because of the kind of beating and the violence and the blunt force trauma involved? You know, what was going on? How does an inmate leave his cell at 2 a.m. when he should be asleep in a locked up cell and make his way to another inmate cell? So these are the questions I need an expert to answer um, and tell the jury. Also, we're going to have surveillance videos. And I know they're going to play around with the videos, especially if any of the sheriffs are involved, which I suspect they are. And that's why I need somebody like you in this case to come in and review all the video material that they sent to us to make sure they've not, there's no hanky-panky you know, going around. Because I suspect right now they're doing a lot of mopping. Yeah, so for a case like that, just as an example, First thing that came to my mind was I need Ed Primo in this case when I get the video recording and I need a really, really good um, um, jail, uh, jail custody, custody expert, somebody who can come in and testify to a jury potentially. So these are the things I think about. Um, I don't think, I think jurors trust lawyers 
yes, they like you, they could trust you, you could speak well, but that's all fine and dandy until the, you, they get to the part where it's time to talk some technical stuff and, you know, nobody's going to trust a lawyer to do that. They want to hear from an expert. And then, of course, when the expert testifies, it's the lawyer's job to drum home the important points the experts raised in their, in their testimony. Yeah. I always tell people a jailhouse should be the safest, one of the safest places because it's surrounded and protected by police or law enforcement. It should be as safe as a barrack. So why on earth is somebody getting his brain popping out of his skull dead in a jail at 2 a.m.? That doesn't make any sense to me. So if you were to give one piece of advice about your collective experiences with bringing in media evidence into the courtroom, audio, video recordings, what what piece of advice would you give them? Hmm. Don't do it on your own. When you're bringing in media evidence, you want to make sure your expert is there to testify and walk you through it. Now, there are certain types of evidence where you don't, for instance, on the Cockerham case, all we needed you to do was just enhance some of the videos and then let it play to the jury. But in most cases, not only should you get an expert for the discovery phase, but for the trial phase, you want your expert to come into court, let the jury see that expert, feel that expert, connect with that expert as that expert walks through each and every step of the media evidence, you know? Most, you know, most of these things, attorneys can do it on their own. Most defense attorneys would love to stipulate because they don't want you guys to come to court. And we'll say, hey, we stipulate to the foundation, we stipulate that the expert is going to say, they just play the tape. We don't need to hear from him. But I always tell attorneys, it adds a lot more credibility bringing these experts like yourself to sit down in the well of the court and walk the jury through what they're seeing, even if they can see it, it just adds to it. Now, most attorneys will say, that's BS, why should we bring in an expert? Yeah, the expert has done his job, he's given me the media evidence, I can play it in court and get a stipulation from the other side with them agreeing that it's authentic. The problem with that is, and they also add, by the way, well, and it saves me money because when the expert comes to court, I have to pay him a, a leg and an arm. And that's ridiculous. Why should I do that? I've already paid him for the work he's done. Uh, and that brings in the classic proverb, which I'm sure you've heard, penny wise, pound foolish, right? Because at the end of the day, even though you're going to pay something extra, these experts like yourself add flesh to the bone when they come to court. The jury gets to see them, maximizing whatever jury verdict or award you're going to get. I have no doubt about that. So that's the best piece of advice I can give anyone. Bring your expert to court, no matter how much it costs, to be worth it. That was great, Nanye. Thank you so much for contributing your wisdom for our listeners today. One last request before we say goodbye. When we were working on the Litwin case, you told me a story about the first time you came to New York. It's pretty funny. Would you mind sharing that story? When I came to the United States, I was uh, 17 plus, 18. And 
Nigeria at the time, this is 99, Nigeria is very advanced now. But at the time, in fact, I think honestly at the time, well, you know, restaurants nowadays, you go into malls, any place you go, you have blow dry. You put your hand underneath it. It blows your hand. You put your hand underneath the sink. The water comes out. I don't think they had that in 99. I think things were just, it had just taken off where you started seeing that technology in the restaurant at the time. So either way, I come in to the airport. I think it was JFK from Nigeria. And, um, you know, it's freezing. I'm like, man, America is cold. Either way, I find my way to the restroom. I watch a guy. I pee. I come out and I realize the taps don't have the, um, what do you call it? The twisting stuff. You know, the tap, the stuff to put on the water, right? Like the faucet. You know, this, the faucet. This guy just put his hand underneath. And, you know, washed his hands. So I'm like, oh, that's very interesting. It was pretty simple. So I watched him. I watched somebody else because I was embarrassed and shy. I was like, man, I don't know what to do. So I watched about three people. Now, I never thought to watch to see what they did to dry their hands. Because coming from Nigeria at the time, you go to a restroom, it had like a um, paper towel, you know? So I watched these guys use the, the, the water you know, they wash their hands. So I'm like, okay, you put your hand in, you remove it. That's it. Simple. Bitch. So my turn. I go wash my hand. Took me a while to get used to it. Work. Okay. Now to dry my hands. I'm like, oh man, I wasn't watching. I see a guy put his hand under the, the dryer, remove it, leave. So I'm like, okay, that must be the dryer. So I, <laughs> I go, I put my hand underneath it. The heat comes out. I remove my hand. It's still blowing. But looking back, now that I know what I know, I think my hand was still placed underneath it, even, the, even if lower. Why? Because I was still trying to figure out how to put this stuff off. <laughs> so this machine is going off. I can't put it off. I'm slapping it, hitting it. I'm like, oh, my God. People are walking into the restroom. I'm too embarrassed to ask them how to put it off. I'm sure some of them were looking at me like, what's this guy doing standing next to his dryer? He doesn't want to leave. Bottom line, I freak out. Now, before I came to the U.S., I was a really naughty kid in Nigeria. I was naughty. I was the last kid. I was spoiled. My dad told me, he said, Nene, when you go to America, you mess up, I will not be able to save you. And they will deport you. Now, looking back, they couldn't deport me because I was a citizen. But my dad, of course, took advantage of my age, told me that regardless to freak me out. So at this point, this um, dryer is going off. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've committed a crime. I'm going to jail for messing up the airport's dryer. I'm going to be deported. I freak out. I grab my suitcase, and I run out of the freaking toilet. As I'm running out of the toilet, this gets more embarrassing, my suitcase breaks open, right? And all my underwear splatters on the floor. So, you know. The police officers are like, what the heck? Young girls walking on her mom, they're laughing. And back then in Nigeria, I hate to say this, we had the whole European underwear. So people are like looking at my stuff like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> so the police officers came up to me in JFK, I think at NYPD. They're like, you know, what's going on? Why are you running in an airport? They're like, what happened? I was like, oh, I don't know. I think I'm going to go to jail. Now these guys get freaked out because they're like, okay, this guy is trying to confess. He's done something. 
They're like, what did you do? I'm like, I don't know what I did. It was in the restroom. They're like, okay, let's go back to the restroom. At this point, I have about two, three police officers with me. We go back to the restroom. They're like, what are you doing here? Because they're trying to figure out what's going on. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. They're like, no, tell us. So I tell them what happened, and they burst out laughing. They're like, boy, son, you're not in any trouble. You didn't put your hands. So these three officers proceed to teach me how to use the drying machine in the toilet. I love Crazy it. Crazy story, I know. Some of the lessons <laughs> come the hardest way in life, don't they? Huh? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, that's it for this edition of Blind Spot. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Nene Uche, for giving us your time and sharing your stories with our listeners. Please send us feedback or any information about what you'd like to hear on future episodes to info at primocompanies.com. And if you visit the Primo Forensic website, you can subscribe to our blog. Give us a call if we can help you with any digital media forensic needs, 800 647 4281. Thanks so much for listening. Please be safe, be kind, and take care.